welcome to the Texas Oil & Gas Podcast, the show dedicated to bring you the news from the oil patch deep in the heart of Texas, with your host, Ryan Ray and Josh Shelton. And we're back with the Texas Oil & Gas Podcast. This is episode 125, 125. I'm your host, Josh Shelton, my friend and co-host, Ryan Ray. Ryan, it's been a, it's been a good week, man. Good, good stuff going on. Yeah, it really has, Josh. <laughs> it really has. We have the return of Speak Nor the Prophet of Doom on this podcast episode. And um, we had a good five-star review. Um, we do need to say, before we get too far in the show, that if you um, have not had a chance to donate to the Baff and Bait Rod and Gun Fund, um, we linked to that in the show notes again this week. This will be the last week we'll do that. And... Um, so for those of you who you know have been down there and want to help out the blacks, we'll link to that in the show notes. We did pick up a five-star review, which was timely, Josh. It was quite timely. We were talking this morning in our little show prep meeting. We've got was it, like 15-something episodes, 12 to 15, I can't remember, before the, the year's over. And uh, so we're going to talk about that in a second. But first, we got a five-star review. Love this podcast, five stars, from Susie Soprano. I look forward to this podcast every Tuesday and often listen to it several times. Josh and Ryan provide the truth via hard evidence and entertaining humor. I find myself laughing out loud to myself. Best podcast out there. Thank you, Susie. And it's good to know that you are laughing at Josh, not with him. I'm, I mean, that, that's kind of how I read into that text. But story for another day. So, Josh, we're getting ready to close out the year. Now, we, we're not sure how we're going to end the last couple episodes, but we wanted to just throw this out there to the listeners. We would like to get to 200 five-star reviews, 200. At the time of this recording, we're at 155. So that's 45 five-star reviews we need to get there. Now, we had a lot of discussion internally, me and you, about how we could do this. We thought, you know, how could me and you pair up with the listeners to inspire the listeners to give a five-star review? And the best thing I think we came up with is for me and you to partner with the listeners is to have Nate swim in Lake Granberry the first week of January. I think that's the best way that we can partner with the listeners. Don't you agree? I agree. I agree. <laughs> I so, think, go ahead. Go ahead. I think Nate, I mean, he's he, he's the one that's uh, carrying the load around here. So I think right. it would be it would be right. him to you know take the plunge. To So for perspective, Lake Granberry from our office is... Not even a, I mean, well, behind us is. Well, it's you know, right over there. It's, yeah, it's about a hundred yards away. Hundred yards away. There's a little beach that's what not even a quarter mile down the road. So if we hit, if we hit forty five five star, not not no threes, not no twos, not no ones. We've got to have the five stars, five star reviews, um, and get us up to two hundred. We'd prefer a rating and a review. So a nice commentary would be nice. But five two hundred of those. Nate will go swimming the first week of January in Lake Granberry. That's Josh and ours, that's our gift to you. We will video it. We will laugh at him. We might not give him a towel. We're talking neck deep water here. We're not talking we're not talking ankles wet. We're talking neck deep water. Nate will be in there. So that will be, you know, that would be lovely. Now, if we want to get crazy here, if we want to get crazy, Josh, if we go up to, if we get 75 five-star reviews between now and the end of the year, um, I think you and Nate will both go into Lake Granbury is what we agreed upon. That, that's right. <laughs> you and Nate. No. no. <laughs> I think you and me, actually, Ryan. Whoa, whoa. Now, that, sounds, that sounds closer to accurate. You know, the favorite host doesn't need to get wet <laughs> that early in the year. Or we could leave that decision to our listeners, and uh, they could vote for who needs to go into Let's Lake Let's not get carried away here, fellas. Let's not get carried away here. <laughs> Let's just say that if, if we get to 45, Nate goes into the water, neck deep, late Granberry, first week of January, he will come out as a literal ice cube. That will be spectacular. If we pick up 75, um, then Josh, I, and Nathaniel will all get into late Granberry as a token of our appreciation. I don't know why we pick getting in the cold water. Why don't we just have Nate get in the cold water? I don't know why we got to get in the cold water. Yeah. Couldn't just, we have given away like a gift card or something? That would have made more sense. Yeah, we need to conspire <laughs> with the listener. Y'all just 200 and just 200. shut it down for a little while. Yeah. I mean, I want to see Nate in the cold water, but as I've talked through this on the podcast, us getting in the water doesn't make a lot of sense. <laughs> I mean, it really doesn't. Nate getting in there. Horrible idea. It's, a ter- it's the worst idea we've had. So let's keep it 200. So, you know, if the first 45 of you could go and vote today, five star, that would be fantastic. So 
that's that. We do have some exciting news, hopefully coming up at the beginning of next year. But until then, we do appreciate the ratings and reviews. It does help try and get that Mount Rushmore status. So if you could help us out, we would appreciate it. And we'd love to see Nate get soaking wet on, what's that, January the 6th, 7th, somewhere in there. We'll we'll, we'll have that um, brought to you. And Josh, final thing is, if you want to hire, you know, like some Russian bots to give us five star reviews, we're not above that, right? No, we're not above that. We're to, to the two hundred threshold. Yeah, <laughs> to the two hundred threshold. Shut it down. And, and just to be clear, we will eventually hit these amount of reviews. This is only until the last day of when we check it, January one. That's it has to be there, right? Yeah. So that's terms and conditions by January one. It takes a few days to get them in there, so be sure to do that. Josh, we haven't heard from the Prophet of Doom lately, and just before we came on the air. The Prophet of Doom sent me this. I will vote for any crazy nut-wing Democrat for president over Trump. That is from the Prophet of Doom speaker himself. He is a little frustrated over the trade agreement that was supposed to happen, didn't happen, might have happened, will happen, allegedly happened this past week. So our speaker Prophet of Doom update is that he is... He kind of backed off that a few weeks ago. I don't know if I talked about it on the air, but he kind of backed off it. He didn't realize they were going to be so crazy. But the frustration level with President Trump is at all-time high. I'm curious for our listenership. Um, are they frustrated President Trump? They think he's doing a good job. Uh, shoot us a note on LinkedIn, textmongaspodcast.com. There's a Contact Us page. I'm curious what you guys think. Are you all happy with what President Trump has done, or do you think he is harming it? Or do you think that no matter if he's harming it, the Democrats would harm it far worse? So be interested to see the feedback on that. Um, so, yeah, Josh, that, I think, is everything. We have guests coming on, but other than that, man, it's been a busy few days. Well, uh, some of the... Big names have been in the news this week: Exxon, Chevron, Halliburton. Uh, there's been there's been you know different for different reasons. Um, the first article we have from Wood McKenzie is uh, four reasons we're bullish on Exxon's Permian growth campaign. Uh, Exxon has really ramped it up this year. They were at 20 rigs a year and a half ago. Now they are running 60 rigs in the Permian. So um, they are really uh, up and up their uh, their production. They are using the cube development strategy. We talked about this a year and a half ago, the, the cube development, and uh, I think it still might be a bit above my pay grade, but um, they are starting to utilize that in the Permian and try to get you know a higher efficiency, better turnaround, and uh, you know lots of other things. So Exxon, I mean they're. They're on fire right now. They're they're producing outproducing anyone it seems, and they're going to be doing it according to this article for many years. Yeah, one of the interesting quotes is it says, in other words, early child wells are producing like other companies' older parent producers, which is interesting because we hear about the the parent child well um, well debate and how it's not working and this that and the other, and it seems that Exxon has it maybe figured out a little bit better than some, which David Blackman was on. I think Josh was off that week. Last time Blackman was on, is that right? Yeah. And one of the things that he said on the show was that when you look at um, these these um, these shell producers, the expertise it takes to produce the well um, is a lot different than a conventional play. And so if you sit there and you look at that, maybe it is something where the, the parent-child thing, it can cause problems, but it also could be a deal where if you have the right expertise or the right formation, that's the other thing here. It could be the, you know, where they're actually drilling in the formation is helpful. But I, I found this interesting because we see a lot of negative talk about parent-child wells, um, the, the lack of productivity from them. Now, this isn't saying that the... That the um, that the, that, the, that the issue is completely resolved, but it is saying that it's better. And the other thing I thought, Josh, is even though prices are soft um, right now, I think they're 52, 53 when I looked at this morning. You, if you look at this, Exxon plans to produce a million barrels a day by 2024, okay? Uh, boost production to a million barrels a day, sorry. Um, the super major is running, this is all quotes from this piece, the super major is running an unprecedented 60 rigs in the Permian, up threefold from just 20 rigs a year and a half ago, and it's just getting started. So when we hear a lot of naysayers, a lot of doom um, um, on the industry, not not like Speakner, Speakner's more focused on certain aspects of the industry, when you hear kind of, oh, woe is me, the, the industry is never going to recover to high prices or stable prices, it feels that Exxon is not necessarily worried about that. They're making a long play. Uh, people who say that the that the Permian ga- uh, oil is not viable because it's too, it's too light, stuff like that. All of these things, when you look at what Exxon is doing, seem to contradict that message, which it doesn't mean it's going to be the glory days of you know $100 oil or anything like that. Again, 
it might be, but it does mean I think sometimes we get kind of caught up on the latest headline, um, the latest trend, and here is people putting their money where their mouth is. Could they be wrong? Sure, but it's just kind of that reminder that if you get in there, you have the technology, you have the leadership, you can do it the right way, you can make money, you can make money long term, and you can make money even while other companies are, 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 uh, are struggling. Yeah, and you know they mentioned here. There's a couple of things that kind of comes to mind is uh, there was something I heard in terms of business where bigger companies sometimes want to manage the threshold of entry for these smaller companies. Um, And so they they do things that make it more difficult for the smaller companies to get in and thrive. Now, I'm not saying this is what's going on, but it makes me think we're going to hit an article here in a minute about uh, some of these bigger companies really wanting to tighten up the methane emissions. And it makes me, and not to say that this is what's going on, but it makes me wonder if some of these bigger companies have increased their efficiencies with technology and, and with uh, just better strategic plans so that they could go in and actually support these improvements in methane emissions as a way of raising that threshold of entry for some of these smaller companies. Well, no, I think you're right. So let's think about like our podcast here. Okay, so we're one of, I don't know how many oil and gas podcasts are out there. And we, as you've, if you've met with me offline, I'll say it all, I've said offline and online, they're not competition. Either you like what Josh and I do or you don't. And we can't really fix that. It's like, like it's Sean Handy or Rachel Maddow or Rush Limbaugh. You either like those people or you don't. So uh, we're not really competing with anybody but, our, but ourselves. Um, but let's say we wanted to grow our market share. And we said, okay, we want to be the number one. I think we're the high, to my knowledge, we're the highest ranked oil and gas podcast in the world. There might be one ranked higher than us. I don't know. Um, we're the highest ranked oil and gas podcast in the world. Um, but let's say we wanted to really crush all the other oil and gas podcasts. We wanted to take it to them. We wanted to, you know, steal all their listeners or whatever. And make it to where if you wanted to get into the podcasting space, you really had to be tough. Well, the first thing we'd do is we'd probably put out more content. Okay, so we'd say, okay, people can only listen to so much content, so we'd put out more content, kind of flood the market with content, which would hopefully snag some more listeners. The other thing we might do is we might go out and really secure um, a ton of interviews with leading experts. So we, we, we hired two or three people, and all they did was set up interviews. And so we interviewed everyone. So you could hear them somewhere else, but you heard them here first. So we could do things where people could come into the market. Now, this is a free market to enter. You buy a mic, recording software. It's pretty much pretty cheap. But those are things in our market we would do. You look at Exxon, what they're doing, they're saying, you know what, we're continue- we talk about this, the rig count, uh, not the rig count, the drilling down report from Sergio Chapa. You know, they're, they're keeping the rigs high, the rigs are running, they're increasing rigs. It's in their best interest, theoretically, to keep the price um, softer than some may like it. So Exxon at 52 might be happy, whereas, uh, you know, Josh Shelton, EMP, might need it at 63. Well, Exxon Mobil can keep it at 52, run Josh Shelton, EMP, out of business, scoop those assets up, the price comes up a little bit or, or however. So, if you remember when we used to have these articles, and I hadn't seen them in a while, Josh, there used to be articles that said the Permian versus OPEC. And we used to tell people there is no such thing as the Permian versus OPEC. You have the Permian Basin, which is a geographic formation, and there's hundreds or thousands of companies in there. There is no Permian Basin versus OPEC. There is no monolithic movement. Um, and so what motivates each company is unique, it's different, and it's based upon their strategic strategy that, that they're trying to deploy. And so we have to remember that. So you, to your point about the raising the, 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 the threshold, yes, it would make sense because that's how they're eliminating the competition. They could go and pick up um, other assets for, for pennies on the dollar instead of having to go and buy them for premiums. You know, and speaking of, so I, I mentioned that Chevron CEO touts Texas growth. This is our next article urges industry improvements on emissions and so uh this is kind of what gave me the the idea uh speaking of exxon and and chevron uh, this article is basically saying that chevron is gearing up to really begin to compete with exxon and the permian uh speaking of the greater houston partnership annual state of energy luncheon chevron chief executive mike worth praised the houston area as a place to do business and growth and then he talks about Houston's place in the energy industry, and he goes on to say that um, that Chevron is planning to really up their production in the Permian soon. So uh, there's been a lot of rumors going around the industry that Chevron is looking to make a pretty major acquisition. Obviously, they were trying to buy um, Anadarko, mm-hmm. uh, lost out on that deal, which really didn't lose. They they gained a billion dollar billion. <laughs> billion dollar breakup fee, is what it says here. Um, so. They they were ready to to make an acquisition, and I think they're they're looking for uh, some some major acquisition here pretty soon. Uh, and did I, did I tell you what I heard the other day? 
So I'm not going to say who told me this because they didn't give me permission. Uh, they may not care, but I won't say. But I was told, look for Chevron to come back and buy Oxy now. Because if you look at Oxy's, I think it was their stock price, it's gone, it's, it's devalued to the point to where Chevron could buy Oxy and Anadarko for like, I don't know, a quarter of the price or whatever it was that they would have paid for Anadarko. Oh, wow. <laughs> I don't know if that's true or not. I haven't verified all the numbers, but someone was saying, they're sending me that saying, you know, if they were to buy Oxy now, they get Oxy and Anadarko for the price of like Anadarko or something crazy. And what a gangster move that would be. <laughs> What's this thing about that? You got a billion dollars not to buy Anadarko, and then you come back and you not only buy Anadarko, you buy Oxy for like the price of Anadarko. If that goes down, that's a straight gangster move. Like that's Tony Soprano coming to your meat locker on Thursday. Like, hey, you know, <laughs> I know you gave me that billion to leave me leave me alone money, but I'm gonna go ahead and need the whole thing. <laughs> I mean, like that's straight out of a gangster movie. So I don't know if that's gonna happen or not. But did someone did uh, put that in my inbox the other day? I thought it was an interesting theory. But well, I mean, here's my question. So when it says this article said that uh, Chevron said last week uh, it will adopt new goals to reduce its greenhouse gas emissions from its oil and gas production by 2023. To your point a minute ago, you know, when Facebook, if you remember when Facebook went to Congress a while back, Zuckerberg said either during that, and I think it was during that, maybe afterwards, that he would welcome regulation. And I think you're on to something here, Josh. Why would Facebook welcome regulation? Because Facebook can help, A, tell Congress, those buffoons, what is and isn't doable, right? So Congress, they can't even turn on a computer. You know, you're talking about the, the dumbest people to walk the planet. They can't do anything. So what happens is they get the private business to advise them on what regulations would be good or bad. Okay, so Facebook pays a, what, $5 billion fine. That's dropping the bucket. Um, and then they get to tell them. So for, for the price of $5 billion, essentially, Facebook will get to advise Congress on what is and isn't good guidelines and policies, which means that Facebook is going to write policies in whose favor? Like, I'm going to give you – I think Nate can answer this one. Nate, who's in what favor uh, will the policies that Congress will write – be in would it be in Facebook favor, someone else's favor, the small guy. If you had to guess, whose favor will those policies be in? They're lobbyists, most likely, um, or in Facebook. Congress's favor. They'd be in Facebook's favor. They paid five billion dollars for the right to write these regulations, which means that if Josh and I want to start a social media platform, we're going to compete with the regulations that Facebook advised Congress to write, right? So for $5 billion, that's what they got. So I think you're right that when you look at this, when Chevron says they want regulation, well, of course they do because they're going to have, like Nate says, have their lobbyists or whatever it is, advising the buffoons that run these that run these, these the, 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 the country or the panels or whatever, the advisory committee, they're telling them, hey, this is what you need to say. Now, the problem is Josh Shelton EMP Company won't get a voice in that. And so he won't be able to say, well, I can't afford to hire, you know, 15, 20 staffers to, to comply with these regulations. Chevron won't care. So when capitalism gets a bad name, Josh, we say we're free market capitalists. We are not talking about this. This is what gives capitalism a bad name is when big companies partner with governments, government isn't, you know, isn't smart enough or doesn't care about the corruption that they're creating, and they, they limit the market for smaller guys. So um, emissions discussions we can have, having big, big companies partner to um, do that, if that's what Chevron's doing, would be a bad thing. Yeah, I mean, you could just envision Chevron going saying, let's, let's put $10 million to decrease our emissions by 10%. They get them decreased by 10%, and then they go to Congress and say, hey, let's make the rule they have to decrease their emissions by so-and-so percent in order to continue drilling. And it's like they've kind of painted the uh, the target around the arrow. They've, they've gotten there first, and then they've moved to that. And, and let's just say, let's just say that Chevron is really trying to do the right thing here. And let's give them the best motive possible. They're trying to reduce emissions, and they're trying to help government. The problem is Chevron, how they do business, is not how Josh Shelton EMP does business. And so it's, it's, so when Chevron is advising them, even if they have the most pure motives in the world, they can't advise them an all-encompassing, all-encompassing policy because they're not a small producer. They're a very large company with very large resources, um, huge HR departments. So you have to be careful, even if you even if you attribute the, the best motives possible. You know, it'd be like me trying to say what Chevron you know can and can't do. I have I have no idea what they can do. None. 
Nada. Zip. They're so freaking big, I couldn't imagine it. And they don't know what I can do because I'm so small that they can't imagine it. So you, you see how it, 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 it can't be equitable. Um, so you need these small trade organizations who represent small producers, um, like the Texas uh, Energy Alliance, uh, Texas Alliance of Energy Producers, guys like that that are smaller, they represent smaller ones that can bring together a large voice to, to kind of make sure they get their voice heard and stuff like this. Well, there's some news that came out this week. Aruba looks to Houston after ending ending refinery deal with Sitgo. Uh, so Aruba is looking to partner with some companies in Houston. Um, and so these were pretty substantial deals that, that I was looking at this week. Um, let's see, Sitgo's 25-year uh, contract to repair and operate the 209,000 barrel per day refinery. So... Um, it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out. This is good news for for jobs in uh, in the Houston area with some of these you know new contracts coming in. Not a lot, not a lot to comment on here. Just to keep in mind when you when you hear about Sitgo, you got to remember that they are uh, I don't remember what the percentage is, but mainly owned by PV, PDVSA, which is a Venezuelan company. So you know we see Sitgo is not keeping up with their contracts or they're struggling or something like that. That you got to kind of go. Think of the Venezuela angle as there. You know, when, when I was growing up, Sitco was just a gas station, you know, and you know, when it got Sitco gas, of course. Now as you get older, you kind of understand the complexities of that. But yeah, not 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 a surprise that there's um, that there's problems with what's going on with Sitco because of um, some of the other stories that we're not going to get into on the show today. Uh, so there's a couple more um, Texas commissioners scale back gathering line proposal so uh there, there was a, a proposal for a gathering line that was submitted i believe earlier this year and uh they have they're there's they're scaling back on this for one reason or another they're they're uh, it's at least being postponed uh, this is 126 was 120 uh, 3745 miles of pipeline in texas um, is what Intervest has, and that's what's being scaled back on. Uh, Ryan, there was some sad news that came out this week. Halliburton, they're cutting 650 jobs in U.S. Uh, as oil field business slows. So this, this news came out middle of the week last week, and, uh, yeah, I mean, that, that's, that's a pretty big cut honestly yeah it's a you know for anyone lost a job sorry to hear that anyway josh and i can help you out let us know um but yeah it's i think it's you know as the drilling slows down josh we're going to see this we're going to see the rigs cannot go off the market without seeing things like this happen so it's it's it's, it's um so you got like a couple of perspectives so for the people who lose their jobs they don't really care about anything beyond that and i don't blame them you lost your job and so that is terribly sad and so anything we can do to help you on that is you know what we'd like to do you have that angle the reality is, though, is that this almost needs to happen because we're seeing the rig count go down, um, which means there's just less jobs on that type of work to be done, whole field service work. Um, also, you know, it's if we're wanting the prices to go up, we had to have production go down some. And so it's kind of that necessary evil. But for the folks who lost their job, um, obviously Josh and I, Text One Guest Podcaster, sorry to hear that. Anything we can do to help you out, um, feel free to reach out to us. And on the pipeline thing josh i am curious i've tried to read a little bit of that if you can sit if someone has some insight or where we can find that at, i'm sure it's on the railroad commission website um we can look up that but i was curious um what all they were arguing over there it, it looks like that was probably the ruling you know we talked a minute ago about big companies getting their way this looks like it was probably the right ruling to protect um you know smaller interest um in the in the pipeline space the New Mexico Project's track Permian Basin ethane emissions. This is from Public News Service. I saw this article earlier this week, and it piqued my interest. I read through it really quickly. And um, so everyone knows that uh, New Mexico is, is more along the, uh, the environmentally friendly um, side. They they're kind of align themselves with Colorado. And uh, so there there is a, there's a little statement in here, Ryan, where they are talking about ways that they want to decrease methane emissions and they have a statement here, methane emissions are 80 times more powerful than carbon dioxide at driving climate change in the near term. Near term. Long term, I guess, methane's not even a problem. Because it's only near term climate change. Yeah, and when they say 80, 80 times. times more powerful, how are they measuring that? Yeah, I thought about this some. I thought about this. I thought that was an interesting statement. I think it's kind of like when I think about me and you. I'm 80 times smarter than you. I can't actually quantify it, but... 
or I'm 80 times better podcast host, or I'm 80 times, I'm not better looking, okay, I can't, I can't take that one, so I'm not even going to try that one, but you know, I think it's like that, you just kind of look at someone, and you go, uh, you size them up, and you just kind of throw out a random number, but what about the long term? Because that, I thought that was interesting, like the, in the near term, it, you know, because I guess long term, maybe it's it's a neck and neck race. You know, first it was carbon dioxide. Now it's methane. And listen, I don't know if they're, they're you know, if it's 80 times, um, you know, it didn't, it didn't even reference where it gets that number from. This is publicnewsservice.org. That's from the Environmental Defense Fund, who says that it's 84 times more potent than the carbon dioxide because it absorbs more heat. Okay. Eighty-four percent. We were we were we were skimming methane four percent there. We can't we can't cut a, a fellow four percent off his, his his credit. Thank you for that, Nate. Eighty times. So again, and this is all I'm going to say. New Mexico, you want free college, and you are walking down this path to where you will be like California, or potentially Colorado. Um, and when you're like that. Um, you know, what happens is, is everyone leaves your state because you, you, you're, you're ran by bigger buffoons than most of us are ran by. And so, um, I, um, anyways, so I think that was interesting. 80 times more. I don't know where they call that number at, but it's just, uh, it was uh, quite, quite fascinating. And just to clarify, just real quick, Ryan, we're not necessarily against reducing methane emissions. So with the Chevron story and this, we're just, we're just kind of questioning how they're, doing these studies what these studies are implying so uh, just to clarify that we're fine with reducing methane emissions we just don't want there to be government overreach and stifling small business or um, manipulating taxes and, and and monies along those lines so today we have three special guests uh, coming on the show today. George Duff, CEO of Grace Capital Management. David Ash, Associate, Grace Capital Management. Uh, and Greg Lehrman, he's an attorney, Texas, Oklahoma, Regional Manager at Asset Preservation Incorporated, uh, an expert on doing 1031s for mineral rights. Uh, welcome on the show today, guys. Glad to have you. Yeah, thanks for having us. Good morning. Thank you. So let's get into real quick. Josh mentioned 1031s for the listeners who aren't familiar with that. What is a 1031, and why are we talking about it on an oil and gas podcast? <laughs> that's a great, that's a really good question. Uh, again, my name is George Duff with Grace Capital Management, and um, there uh, we we have a little running joke that there's a reason why that uh, Donald Trump doesn't want you looking at his tax returns, um, and that's because I think he takes pretty good advantage of the um, IRS code, um, section 1031, of um, being able to do these exchanges and not having to pay any taxes. And so uh, we as a wealth management firm have worked with um, you know wealthy people who tend to own a lot of different assets. And uh, as such, over the years, we've helped them um, do these same uh, tax-deferred uh, exchanges as well. And recently, we found out that, you know, um, well, there's been tons of people who have thought, hey, this is only, uh, you can only do this with real estate, and that's the only thing you can uh, exchange. But, uh, but today we brought Greg Lehrman. He's, he's not only a real estate attorney, but also a qualified intermediary who handles these 1031 exchanges. And, um, and maybe if I can take a step back, just a 1031 exchange is when you're selling a, an appreciated asset at a gain. Um, you can uh, exchange into uh, what they call like-kind investment. Um, and if you do that, you can avoid the taxes on that gain or at least defer them until, um, until you pass away or until uh, you decide to realize those taxes. Uh, most people uh, elect to continue to um, defer them until they pass away and get a step up in cost basis for their heirs. Um, but uh, most people thought that's only available for real estate um, and, you know, have been surprised to know that, oh, I can go from raw land to apartments or I can go from uh, rental property to um, a retailer or a warehouse. 
But this idea of having like kind um, also extends to minerals. And so we, we've had conversations with folks, uh, with uh, mineral people who have said, no, we've had a CPA tell us we, can't, we cannot do that. Um, but, um, but we're here to kind of say, no, uh, like kind also includes minerals as well. And I think Greg will get into that in a minute. But I just kind of wanted to set the stage to say the way we felt like um, it could be beneficial is this, as you're calling and um, you may have some people that are on the fence that, you know, we're not so sure. And man, if we sell this, this is going to be quite a bit of a tax uh, burden. Um, this is just a, a, another way to address that, to maybe get them off, off the fence and, and um, create a transaction uh, for people uh, in a mineral business. And so having said that, I think I'd like to maybe turn it over to Greg, um, who is you know, licensed to give continuing education to CPAs on the topic and can kind of throw um, a larger light on kind of the 1031 it's, you know, um, and kind of the rules and regs and how it's applicable to, uh, to royalty interest. Greg? Yeah, again. thanks. Sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So, um, yeah, the tax code actually does use the word real property. It says you can only do 1031s when you are selling real property that is like kind, but real property, the cases state explicitly that minerals are real property for 1031 purposes. And also that like kind doesn't mean the same similar use property. So not only are rental houses like kind to apartments, and office buildings and ranches, but all of those are like kind to minerals. One story I can tell you, I had a customer that sold half their minerals in the Permian Basin and bought an office building in New York City. And that is considered like kind. So all you have to do is be selling an interest in real, real estate in the United States that you were either running a business out of or holding for investment. So if you're holding, if you own minerals under the ground, you can sell those and buy rent houses, apartments, office buildings, um, anything that's real property, including other minerals. And um, and even if you buy uh, traditional real estate, it doesn't have to be real estate that you manage and have to deal with the tenants. It can be very passive. So you could sell you could sell minerals. And if, even if you don't want to buy minerals, keep owning minerals and you want to own real estate, it doesn't mean you have to own high maintenance real estate. Um, you can buy something that George um, is in the business of providing, which is purely passive real estate. You're buying a piece of a building, but you don't have any uh, responsibility for it. So like kind is any real estate, including minerals in the United States that you were holding for use in the business or for investment. So um, people can sell minerals and buy buildings, but more often than not, they sell buildings, apartments that they're tired of managing and they buy only gas royalties. So apartment buildings are definitely like kind of oil and gas royalties. And so there you're going from high maintenance to zero maintenance and still deferring the tax. And as George said, uh, potentially you can defer it your whole life and never pay it and then leave a stepped up basis to your heirs. Yeah, so one question there is, let's say we, we have a lot of landmen that listen to the show, obviously, um, and they're dealing with someone who is looking to defer, uh, looking to maybe unload their minerals and get into real estate or something like that. What kind of cost savings from a tax standpoint? Let's say that the minerals are valued at a million dollars, just to make the math somewhat easy. You got, you're going to sell your minerals for a million dollars. What kind of tax savings can you defer by using a 1031 exchange? Well, let's say their basis is zero, uh, just as an example. They could be they could be deferring the two hundred and thirty eight thousand dollars they would have otherwise um, paid. You're deferring it, but again, you can defer it forever. So each person's situation is different, as we always know. Check with your advisor on what your taxes would be. But there's a capital gains tax rate of fifteen percent on your appreciation up to a certain level, and above. A certain level, it's 20%, and then there's a 3.8% Medicare tax. So a very, and it depends on what your basis is, but a very typical percentage that you are going to give up uh, of your gain is uh, 23.8%. For some people, it's lower. 
but 23.8% is very typical. That chunk, that just goes away when you sell if you don't do a 1031 on your appreciation. Now, if you're selling depreciated assets, you can have a higher tax. Um, and especially with working interest, if you're selling working interest, those have even more aggressive write-offs. Well, if you sell those, you may wind up recapturing recapturing that. But just as a general rule, just as a ballpark to think of a you know a chunk a chunk that you're typically losing if you don't do a 1031, it can easily be 23.8 percent of your of the amount you're selling it for over what your current cost basis in the property is. So obviously that can be a lot of money. So instead of pay that that tax, you move it over to another investment. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. So one of the things, I'm not the 1031 expert here, but uh, help me, refresh me. I want to say there's two timeframes that that are important, like 45 days and 180 days when you're dealing with 1031. Is that the right time periods and how do those um, work into this process? Right. So, so before you convey, you can go ahead and contract to sell minerals or real estate, but before you actually convey title, you have to contact someone like us to have exchange documents at the closing. And then once the benefits and burdens of ownership pass, the clock starts ticking and you're exactly right. The two clocks are a 45 day clock and a 180 day clock but they both start at the same time. It's not 45 plus 180. So you only have 45 days after you close your sale to identify potential replacement properties in a total of 180 days, including that 45 to actually take title. And and there's a few different rules, um, you know, that you can get into the weeds on, but one of the main ones is the three property rule where you can list up to three properties, um, and, but if you don't, if you want to list more than three choices, you can even list unlimited choices if you don't go over 200% of your sales price. So if you're selling for a million bucks, if you keep your choices to three or less, you could list, you know, a billion dollars worth of properties. But if you want more than three choices, then the total value of all your choices cannot be more than two, two million if your gross sales price worth one million. So it's mainly it's basically either a three property rule or a two hundred percent rule. You can change your choices during those forty five days, but not thereafter. So you want to be looking um, you know, for replacement properties before you close. And then you have another forty five days. So you obviously you don't you don't have to and don't want to wait until you close to start looking. You can even contract to buy something. So try to tie something up and have it ready to go is great. It's the way to do it. Yeah, so, um, right. So one of the things that I come across when dealing with, uh, you know, mineral owners is, um, you know, sometimes they're, um, you know, the kind of analogy we've talked about is kind of like, um, you know, um, you know, mom and dad are getting ready to unload, but but sometimes I come across you know, more sophisticated buyers and sellers. Is there a limit to, you know, they're, they're doing multiple deals a year. Is there a limit to how many um, deals you can put through a 1031 exchange in the, in the same year or same quarter or same decade? Is there any kind of restrictions on how often you can use the 1031 exchange to your benefit? Thanks. Good question. There's no limit on how many you do. We have some major, major huge companies that have so many going on with us that we have Excel spreadsheets where we keep up with what property is being sold under what exchange. There's no limit on that. The limit is this is not for flips. That's the only thing that's limiting you. You could do a million exchanges in a year, but except you're limited to properties that you bought to hold. That's, that's what limits you. You you can't just flip every day, but um, that's the number one question. Yeah, exactly. There is no definition of a of flip. Um, this is for properties you buy to hold, and, and guess what? The tax code doesn't define that word. So that's that's still the number one question we're asked is, okay, they say, the way everybody words it is, how long do I have to hold it? Well, you can't even answer it that way since it's not in the code what the word held means. It's not just based on how long because they don't give you a time period. So... If you get into a fight with the IRS and you go to court, you have to show you had the right intent. So like so many laws, if something's not defined, the court has to try to get in your head and figure out your intent. So really it is case by case. But 
how long the longer you hold it, the easier it is to prove the right intent. And so, if you hear the words, if you hear people say one year or two years, that's because those are very rough rules of thumb. That's just part of the equation. And um, it is aggressive to do a 1031 on a property you haven't even held a year, but there's nothing that says you can't do it. So if you do a 1031 on a property you've held less than a year, you have to show that you really thought you were going to hold it longer, but something changed. So... Yeah, it sounds like, Josh, if we're going to do some 1031 exchanges, we just need to send back a bunch of emails saying, boy, we're excited about having this property for 50 years. This is the greatest thing ever. This is a long-term play. Make posters, put up billboards. Oh, shuck, 30 days later, we had to get out of it because circumstances changed. I'm just saying, like, that's kind of that's kind of what it, you know, off the record, me and Josh, no one's listening here talking. That's kind of sounds like we, we should do, Josh, is just, you know, a lot of intent. A lot of intent is, uh, is you know, just by documenting a lot of intent. What you would not want to do is, it sounds like on the contrary, is be caught sending your buddy, hey, I'm going to buy this for 10 days, flip it, and 1031 it. That would be hard to impr- to, 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 um, to uh, disprove the intent was a long-term hold. So it sounds like you don't want to be caught saying that is, is, is the short version. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's, funny, it's funny that yeah. I'm sorry. It's yeah, funny that you mentioned that because Greg had a he, he's got you know uh, as an attorney he's kind of got you know precedents and some case law, but um, um, there was a paper trail of you know he he has a tale of two families that uh, were doing 1031s and one that the intent was completely reasonable. The IRS allowed it, and one where the IRS disallowed it. I know Greg, if you wanted to kind of throw some light on that, but you know the the ones sure. that had kind of the paper trail on what their intent was for the <laughs> for their property. Yeah, uh, yeah. If you Google uh, Goolsby, G O O L S B Y, and also Resync, R E E S I N K, those are two separate families that each did the most basic 1031 that's out there, and that is selling a residential rental and buying a residential rental. That's the highest volume, 1031. So one, but each family converted the rental to a primary residence a few months down the road. And you cannot 1031 into something that you intend to move into um, other than after you have held it for an investment down the road. But uh, one of the families, so they both got audited. One family won their case, even though they moved in a few months down the road, and the other family lost, and there was good reason. The family that won proved that things really changed right after they bought it. They lost their job or something. They were about to lose. All of a sudden, they couldn't even pay their mortgage on their primary residence. They really, they had proof that they were trying to rent this property, um, but they couldn't. And um, so circumstances changed and dictated they've got to sell their other house and move into this house. So they won their case. In the other case, it was it was borderline fraud. There were emails proving they had no intention to rent it out. Um, so that's the difference. Um, yeah, and that, that really I think shows. I think their ha- I think the house in question too was in a neighborhood that prohibited rentals. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> so really bad facts. So that's the way it works. It's all the intention and the facts. Okay. So before we let you guys get out of here, a couple of quick things. Um, did we want to talk about the Red River shootout? I know David's on the call. No. Okay. Okay. I didn't know. <laughs> I didn't know this is the Texas oil and gas podcast. So I didn't know if we need to, you know, kind of slice that up a little bit. Um, r- rough day for the Longhorns this weekend. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I mean, the defense is pretty dinged up, and you know, I gotta give credit to OU's defense. They kind of stepped up and played better than anybody thought they would. But you know, the way the the Big Twelve set up now, you know, we'll probably get another shot on at the end of the year, and. You know, I think maybe we'll be healthy and um, maybe we'll give them a, a run for their money. And last year it worked out whoever won that last game really got a better deal at the end of the year. So um, we're hoping for another shot, I think. <laughs> well, I decided I would be remiss if I didn't ask. That's hard hitting journalism you get on the Texas Long Guys podcast here. <laughs> okay, oh, yeah, so, you know, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, you know, I mean, you know, I got to. 
I got to I got to add to the conversation somehow. You know, I didn't get much about the oil and gas, but so you got to use me for what I'm good for. Uh, uh, the pretty face that answers all the tough questions. Huh? That's how it goes. <laughs> okay, Grace Capital Management is the company. Why don't you guys point us to websites, social media, LinkedIn, uh, events, conferences, wherever you guys want folks to connect with you at. You bet. Actually, maybe even before we kind of sign off, too, I think an area that we kind of um, uh, skipped over, if maybe I can kind of summarize it. Hey, you're, you know, you've got some people that you're looking to you know, buy interest from. They're kind of on the fence. You can use the 1031. You know that you know now that, hey, um, mineral interest supply is not just on real estate. Um, uh, Greg, is we got into a little bit of the weeds with just a couple of different aspects of the 1031. There are lots of different rules, um, so it's not as simple and straightforward. Um, and so you want to contact somebody like Greg or like Grace Capital that can kind of help um, help your prospects navigate through that to make sure that they've got a, a perfect and qualified exchange. Um, and then our solution, um, because of course you can do this, you know, going real estate to minerals or minerals to real estate. You can do it all kinds of different real estate. Uh, but the the solution that we use is a DST, and a lot of folks aren't familiar with DSTs. And and really a DST is a everyone has heard of REITs, real estate investment. Investment trusts. They're just a, a way to custody um, real estate. Um, but REITs are not um, allowable in a 1031 exchange. It has to be direct ownership into real estate. And so in 2004, DSTs were created. So for all intents and purposes, they are a real estate investment trust. They're a private REIT, if you will, uh, where people own fractional shares in that real estate. And so therefore, and it was designed to specifically um, meet all the standards of the 1031 exchange. And just like Greg said, uh, those investments tend to be purely passive. What we, what you end up happening happens is a lot of folks will be um, looking to simplify their life, looking to sell some assets off and right off into the sunset. They don't want all the headaches of actively managing real estate. And so it's just a great way. We call it mailbox money. You, you invest into, you know, uh, a handful of apartment complexes that you own a, um, a fractional share. Um, a couple of years ago, uh, in Houston, the headquarters for Academy Sports and Outdoors, um, uh, they offered as a as a, a DST. So you got to be the landlord, own a fractional share in the headquarters for um, Academy Sports and Outdoors. Not one of their stores, but their headquarters right across the street from the distribution center. And so um, we had clients that that got in. We're getting paid a six percent yield uh, from Academy on a master lease, a twenty year master lease. The only way that they get out of that is through bankruptcy. And um, and I think in year five, the first rent bump up hit. So clients go to 6.6% in yield. And the strategy is you, you get into this DST, you get into this trust, this real estate trust that qualifies. Um, you skip out on a ton of taxes. Uh, you get to get passive income of which most of it or a bunch of it can be tax excludable. And so it's... Um, they, they do they do tricks like offset uh, income with higher depreciation things like that. So I literally had a client in that deal that made sixty thousand uh, dollars, had five thousand dollars a month, had a million bucks in it, got you know sixty thousand for the year. And I sat in his CPA office and he had eighteen hundred dollars worth of reportable income. So um, so you're able to skip out on a, quite a bit of taxes on not having to pay on those gains. You're so, you get quite a bit of passive income, and the whole idea is that maybe if we get five or six percent and yield and another five percent five or six percent in appreciation you know we're set up to you know over a market cycle get double digit returns um, we don't want to be too risky and go chasing after shrimp farms we'd like to have some things that make that make sense uh, we're a wealth management firm and so you know the name of the game when you manage money for wealthy people is just they, they need to stay wealthy you just grow out prudently and so um, just like everything in life there are good bad and average kind of things, and so same things go for DSTs. So one of the uh, part of the value that we bring is by kind of sourcing and going through all the good, the bad, and the ugly to say, hey, you know, we've done some due diligence, we've brought some other research on on board, and we feel like these are really good candidates. Um, you know, sometimes there can be a degree of anxiety that people are hit with when it's like, oh my gosh, 45 days or 180 days to close. I'm, uh, David got a call on a 1031 exchange. And they asked him, um, can you close by midnight tomorrow? 
and uh, and David and and uh, Greg were able to do that for the client, and so um, so there can be a lot of anxiety. And DSTs are a great way to where you don't have to say, oh, that second plot off, you know, Route 189. You know, I think I want to get that. Um, there are uh, professionally marketed and uh, uh, produced 10, 1031 exchange DST properties that are kind of always on the market. And so we, we kind of do the analysis, say, hey, this looks like maybe three or four properties that you want to take a look at and can literally close to the penny um, because it's that fractional share. And so, um, and that's maybe another issue that we can talk about is that, you know, you don't have to do this with all of your money. If if um, if somebody had a million bucks, but they needed it, they wanted to pull out a hundred thousand or a quarter million. Now they're going to pay tax on that. That's called boot and it's fully taxable, uh, but they can shelter the rest if they want. And then they pay taxes on that. Um, and uh, uh, what was I going to say about the, uh, about the boot? Um, oh, and the opposite could happen. Uh, maybe someone is going to exchange minerals and they already have a property, but um, but the odds of those two uh, being the exact same price that you know they sold for a million and they found something exactly for a million. Usually, it's something like they sell for you know 2.8 million. They find something that they like for 2.1. There's you know 700 thousand dollars, or it could be there's 323,212 dollars and 16 cents. And if that's the case, and they want to make the whole transaction uh, tax free. They um, they can get into a DST and and invest um, passive real estate you know dollars into that and make the whole thing tax free. So um, so I hope that okay, helps well, clarify yeah, a little bit what a DST is. Yep, that's great. And we are up against the clock. Grace-cap.com is the website. Grace-cap.com is the website. Nate will be kind enough to link to that in the show notes. Gentlemen, thank you so much for coming on today. We really appreciate it, and uh, it was really insightful. Thank you. All right. Thanks again to George, David, and Greg with Grace Capital Management uh, coming on the show today, giving us some insights on the 1031 exchanges and some tax benefits. Ryan, uh, we have the roundup I'm going to run through real quick uh, just to wrap us up for the day. Uh, Austin's newest unicorn rig up lands a A16 led $300 million Series D. Uh, If you want to look at that article, check it out in the show notes. Independent again, Baker Hughes rolls out a new look. Uh, in, uh, so Baker Hughes, if you want to check them out, they were under uh, General Electric Company for quite some time. They are back as an independent, and I'm sure they're going to be looking to make some um, shake things up a little bit. So keep your eye on Baker Hughes. Last but not least, oil and gas pipeline giant pays millions to small Texas town for pipeline running through the city. So Kendra Morgan is paying the city of Kyle 2.7 million um, for undue financial burdens associated with the Permian Highway pipeline running through the city of Kyle. So interesting story if you want to follow up be sure to check it out Uh, with that Ryan I think that wraps us up man. Yep the one trend through the show was we talked pre-show about the number 45 and the relevance for Nate. Mid-show we had on the guest about the 45 of the 1031 and we're going to end with 45. 45 five-star reviews. I think we should That's, end with 75 Ryan. It was four, eight, one, no, no. Let's, let's stick to 45. 45 on the nose where we want to be. Ratings and reviews in iTunes. If you don't have an iTunes account, for the sake of Josh's enjoyment of watching Nate get wet in zero degree water water please go get an account it takes three three seconds we'll link to iTunes in the in the show notes so you can just click on it rate and review five stars uh, we'd love to hear some feedback as well guys thank you so much and until next time keep climbing.